All right, thanks, Cam. Uh, we'll be looking at John chapter 4 tonight. So if you've got Bibles, I'd encourage you to open it up and have a look. We're going to be working through it um, bit by bit as we go through, and I'll, I'll mention the verses we're at in case you need signposts as you work your way through. Now, my household, so we've got Melody's my wife, for those who don't know. I've got two kids, Caleb and Zachy, and in our household at the moment, we're at a time where we're starting to explore the use of cutlery. And I think in their heads, everyone in our household knows that cutlery is a good idea. I think they can see value in being able to cut things up and use it to feed themselves, and they see that that's actually that has merit, that idea, right? Um, and in our heads, we know that cutlery is a good idea. Now, the other day, though, I looked down and... Beside me, uh, Caleb was sitting there, and he had a knife in one hand, fork in the other, and he'd cut his sausage up perfectly, and he was just grinning from ear to ear. He said, look, I cut up my sausage. And I thought, that's fantastic. See what you can do with cutlery. Because I think it's one thing to know something in your head. It's another thing to experience the reality of it. Um, Many of us know about the gospel in our head. You know, we know in our head that it's a good thing. We know in our head that it has value. Uh, it's a very different thing to experience the reality of it. And you see, the gospel was never intended just to be known. It was never intended as just a good idea or something that involved good teaching. The gospel was something that, we were intent- that was always intended to be experienced. The gospel was something that is intended to change and transform people's lives from the inside out. And we get a real-life example of that in John chapter 4 when we look at the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at a well, and he um, speaks to her in a way which transforms her life. Now, many people have looked at this passage from the perspective of a model of evangelism. Okay? So many people look at this passage from the perspective of Jesus and looking at the way Jesus engages with her and the way he talks to her and the tools that he uses as a way of sharing um, truths about God. And that's a good thing to do when you look at this passage. But tonight, I want to take a bit of a different approach. So tonight I thought we could make, really try and get into the head of the Samaritan woman. And I really want to make sure we understand things from her perspective and understand what this interaction with Jesus meant to her as a Samaritan woman at that time. Because when we look at things from her perspective, I think we're really, we can easily then be reminded of Jesus' heart. We can remind, be reminded of the truth of what he achieved on the cross And importantly, we can be reminded of the transformative and life-giving power of the gospel when we experience it for ourselves. So by fleshing these things out, my prayer is that the person Jesus will hopefully move from being someone we just know about to being someone we can experience and someone who can change our lives and work in us to change us from the inside out. Now, this narrative starts with Jesus taking a very long walk, okay? He's walking from a place called Judah to Galilee. I was going to get a map, but I didn't get around to it. So if you can imagine there's a map in front of me, you've got a place called Judah down here, and you've got Galilee straight up there. And in the middle, you have Samaria, okay? So as always, the fastest way between point A and point B is a straight line through the middle, Okay? And many people would walk straight. If they're doing this track from Judah to Galilee quite a long way. They wouldn't extend it any more than they needed to. They would go straight from point A to point B. And that's what Jesus does. But that's different to what a lot of religious Jews would do. A lot of religious, pious Jews, they would go out of their way to avoid Samaria. Rather than drawing a straight line between point A and point B, down the edge of Samaria you have the Jordan. 
So a lot of so the the religious Jews would go they would make the trip even longer by going around the east side of the Jordan back up and then into um, then into Galilee that way. You have to ask the question why? This is dry, barren, hot land. Why wouldn't you just take the shortest route? To understand that, we need to know a little bit about the Samaritans. Now, Babylonians conquered northern Israel. Okay? We read about that in Old Testament times. And when they conquered northern Israel, they took much of the nation captive. And they focused on the, the higher end of society, if you like. They focused on the leaders, the influential people. They took them into Babylon and they tried to immerse them with their own culture. Okay? They wanted to make them Babylonian. And the principle is, if you cut off the head, then the rest should fold. So what they left behind then in taking out the high class of society, they left behind the lower classes. But they didn't just leave them behind. What they then did is with those lands where they left behind the lower end of society, they then repopulated those lands with other nations. They filled them up with a whole lot of foreign nations. And then as you can expect then, over time, what happens is the ones who are left behind, they intermarry with those nations, they mingle in with them, they adopt a number of their beliefs and practices with the intention that that nation will ultimately disappear. And that's where the Samaritans were born. Because of this intermingling with the other nations, the Samaritans, if you like, were viewed as half-breeds. They were looked on as almost like a mongrel faith. Okay? They had elements of classical Judaism, but had been mixed in with all of these pagan practices. They had their own um, Pentateuch, the first few books of the Old Testament, but they rejected the rest. Uh, but they had their own version of that one because it was intermingled with a whole lot of pagan rituals and pagan beliefs. They even built their own temple to God in Samaria. But around about 128 BC, the Jews came in and destroyed that temple. So as you can imagine, relations between the Jews and the Samaritans at this point were fairly tense. But it's not just that relations weren't great. Ultimately, the Jews just saw them as an unclean people. They were effectively a pagan people, and therefore they had no place in their mind. They had no place or entitlement to the promises of God, no place in their kingdom, no place to all of the promises that were given ultimately to their patriarchs in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is why many people would just avoid Samaria altogether. But we see Jesus going straight through it. Ironically, then, he comes to a place called Sychar, which is actually has incredible significance for them. Okay? This place was where God first appeared to Abram when he was in Canaan, and Abram built an altar to God. It was then the place where um, Jacob returned when he'd been with his uncle Laban. He was returning back to Esau. And then Jacob then gave this land to Joseph. Okay? We know Joseph was then the famous person that went into Egypt. And then as part of the Exodus, they took Joseph's bones and then buried them back in this place. This is the place where Jesus is now. And this is the place where he's tired from his journey and he he has a rest by a well and then the Samaritan woman enters and she comes in to draw water. Now, we've talked a lot about the Samaritans and painted that picture. Now, what do we know about the Samaritan woman? Well, the answer is we don't know a lot. But what we do know suggests that she was most likely an outcast, even within an already exiled group of people. 
You're already talking about an exile group of people. And even within that, it looks like she was herself was outcast from within that community. And there's a couple of things that tell us that. First thing, she's here on her own. She's drawing water all on her own. Now, water in this day, remember, in a dry and barren land, we're a long time ago. So water is not exactly plumbed into people's houses. They have to go to the well to get their water for the day to bring it back. It was generally a very communal activity. People would do it as part of their daily routines, so they'd do it as a group. She's doing it on her own. But not only is she doing it on her own, she's doing it at noon. Now, this is a hard-working activity. I know a woman is doing it, but they've got to take the water out of the well. If you've ever lugged a large amount of water, it's actually not the lightest thing. So if you're going to take that back to your town, people are generally doing it in the morning or the evening rather than under the heat of the sun in the middle of the day. But she's coming in the middle of the day under the heat of the sun all on her own. Everything seems to point to the fact that even within an exiled group of people, you then have an outcast from within the exiles. But Jesus meets her there and Jesus wants to engage with her. You know, you can see here that no one is beyond the loving reach of Jesus. No one is beyond the gospel. Jesus is willing to go to a people group that others would avoid and engage with a person who it seems was outcast from that people group and he's standing at the well and he wants to engage because he wants her to know his love. He wants her to know the promises of God and he wants her to experience them for herself. Now, it's not like this is a once-off. Jesus' ministry was characterized by this. All through Jesus' ministry, he's healing the blind, the sick, the lame, those with leprosy. Now, those are ailments that people associated with a sinful condition. They saw that as God's judgment on those people. So they were outcasts from society. So Jesus goes to them and he heals them. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a different kind of outcast. Now, he was a Jew, but he was a tax collector. So he was viewed as a traitor. People didn't want to associate with him. But Jesus goes to Zacchaeus and says, I want to come to your house for dinner tonight. I want to spend time with you. There's a woman where the religious authorities were going to stone to death, and they look at Jesus, and Jesus says, those who are without sin cast the first stone. Over and over again, we see that Jesus was reaching out to those who had been rejected. Now, it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In each of these cases, Jesus looked at the heart, irrespective of who they were or what their background was or where they were from, he looked straight at the heart and he saw a soul that needed him. And so he wanted to engage. Who is it in your network of friends and family that needs Jesus? Who is it which uh, you have seen as potentially beyond the reach of the gospel? Who in your life might you look at or have a sense that um, they might feel unworthy of the gospel? Who here in this room might have felt unworthy of the gospel? How might God have placed people in your life so that you could be the one who reached out to them with the love of Jesus? That they might meet him and engage with him. Because what you see here is Jesus stands there waiting, wanting to engage.
because he sees a soul that needs him. It's so easy to form judgments about who the gospel of Jesus Christ is for. And it's so easy to form judgments on who will and won't listen to that gospel. But we're reminded here that the gospel is for everyone without exception. Jesus is always reminding us that no one is beyond reach. The gospel of grace is for all. So what happens next? Well, in verse 7, Jesus asks for a drink. And she wonders why he would do this, because as we've talked about, Jews and Samaritans don't generally mix. You can see she says, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink, she says in verse 9. And Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And we sang a song that alluded to that just before. Now, she's clearly, at this stage, clearly missing what Jesus is referring to here when he talks about living water because she asks him, where's, where's he going to get it from? Yeah. Have you got somewhere else to get it? It refers back to Jacob. It says, Jacob himself came to this well. He drew water out of this. Everyone from the town comes and draw water out of this. Where are you going to get your living water from? Now, seeing that she's missing the point, Jesus then expands on the idea in verse 13 and 14. This is what he says. He says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water that's welling up to eternal life. Now, it's worth talking about water for a second. Samaria was a dry and barren area. Like I said, they didn't have water plumbed into their houses. Going to the wells to get water was just a matter of necessity. They had to do it for survival. You know, people can generally live up to a month without food, or so Google tells me. I personally couldn't. But theoretically, apparently, you could live for up to a month without food. Now, water is a very different thing. Apparently, 60... Again, I say apparently. It's amazing what you find out on Google. Apparently, 60% of your body is made of water. It simply needs water to function and survive. So instead of up to a month without food, you're talking a matter of days at best without water. We are, as people, we are completely dependent on water for survival. Now here's the irony of water. Almost 70% of the world is covered with water. It's everywhere. It's abundant. But only 2%, 2 2.5% of that water is fresh. I, only 2.5% of it you can actually drink. But of that 2.5%, only 1% of that is actually accessible and available for us, for sustaining life. Because most of it is locked up in glaciers and snowfields and so forth. So that means of the world's water, there's like 0.007% of it is actually accessible and available to sustain the life that we depend on. But we're surrounded by it, Right? Now, why am I spending so much time talking about water? Jesus is taking a precious commodity, physical commodity of water, and he's trying to teach us and illustrate a spiritual truth. We all need spiritual or living water. We simply can't survive without it. Our soul cannot survive without it. And what do I mean by spiritual or living water? I mean Jesus Christ. We read John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. It says, Jesus says this. He says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to 
me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is the nourishment that our soul depends on. Jesus is our only source of life. Jesus is our only source of hope. Jesus is our only way to experience a life that he intended us to live. He is all that our soul needs. He is the only thing that our soul needs. He is the only thing that can offer that soul life. Now the problem is though that we, ironically, are surrounded by other forms of spiritual water. It's just salty. It's not the source that will give us any life. It's not going to offer us true and eternal life. It's only Jesus that can offer that. Everywhere else we turn, we will just be thirsty and thirsty again. We're being told to drink of the water of success. Success in our career, in our studies, in our job, whatever that might look like for you. We're constantly being told to drink of the water of entertainment or experimentation. Just give it a go. Go out. Have a good time. Life is short. We're being told to drink of the water of sex and pornography. We're being told to drink of the water of relationships. If it's available, then just take it. We're being told to drink of the water of acceptance amongst the people around us. To drink of the water of belonging to drink of the water of security or comfort to make sure we're setting ourselves up for the future. But when we drink of anything other than the person Jesus Christ, we will thirst and thirst and thirst because our soul needs him. Our soul needs him. Jesus is looking straight into the eyes of the Samaritan woman and he's saying, physically, you need the water in this world to survive. Spiritually, you need me. No matter how much we try to ignore or deny it, our soul will always thirst for Jesus until we turn to him. So what are you thirsting for? What are we thirsting for? What is the cup from which we have been drinking, which is doing nothing for us but just creating a deeper and deeper thirst? How might Jesus be wanting us to turn back to him to believe in him, to place our lives back in his hands so that he can once again be the nourishment that our soul demands. Because when we drink from any other cup, those cups will only lead to death. They will drag us further and further and further away from the loving arms of God. And any road that leads away from Jesus is leading us straight towards death and separation from him. But when we turn to Jesus, he says, you believe in me and you come to me, I will offer you living water and it will continue on into eternal life with our heavenly father, our creator God, the ones we were designed, the one who we were designed to be in relationship with. The gospel is for everyone because everyone's soul thirsts for Jesus. The gospel is for everyone because everyone's soul thirst for Jesus. Now it's clear in verse 15 when you look at it that the Samaritan woman still isn't quite getting it. Okay? She's not getting the message. 
She says, well, give me this water so I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. That would be a bonus, wouldn't it? If I've got living water, I don't need to thirst again. Don't need to keep coming out here on my own in the middle of the day to get this water. Tell me where I can get your water from. She's still thinking physical water, physical thirst rather than spiritual need. So Jesus tries a very different approach. In verse 16, he says, well, go call your husband and come back. A Samaritan woman says, I don't have a husband. Classic shutdown response. I don't want to go there, okay? This is a sensitive issue you're touching on, Jesus. I'd prefer to not acknowledge the complexity in that area, so I'll just say I don't have a husband. Rather than acknowledging the complexity of her relationships before Jesus, being transparent on it, it's just, let's just pretend it's not an issue and move on. But Jesus knows. And if you're going to take anything else out of this section, just remember this, that Jesus knows. He knows us better than we know ourselves. If you look at what he says in verses 17 to 18 to the woman, he says in this response, he's just got this shutdown response, I don't have a husband. He says, well, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jesus knows. He knows our sin. He knows our faults. He knows our mistakes. He knows our struggles. He knows our circumstances. He knows us from the inside out because nothing is hidden from his sight. Now, if you're anything like me, it's very easy to live your life behind closed doors. You know, this was particularly the case for me through my late teens, early 20s. It was me all over. And I don't mean that I live my life in the bedroom. I mean that it means that so much of my sin was lived in secret. I lived out my life and, 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 and so much of my life and what I was doing was kept away from the people who cared for me because I knew they probably wouldn't approve of what I was doing. Church was still there, God was still there, but honesty and transparency was not. But Jesus knew because he knows. There was no place to hide from him and there is no place to hide from him. We're no different from this Samaritan woman in that Jesus wants to reach straight into our hearts and address the sin that is there, the sin that is most likely kept hidden from the view of anyone else, the sin that's just between us and God. But Jesus knows that sin. But importantly, having drawn this out from the Samaritan woman, he doesn't leave her in a place of judgment. He offers her hope. In verse 19, you can see it's like the eyes, the light starting to switch on with this woman. She says, I can see you're a prophet. It's like she can see that Jesus knows things that he had no way of knowing other than through God. So there's a recognition here that something's going on. And then she makes a really interesting comment by saying that, the, the, that they have to worship on this mountain, but the Jews claim that God can only be worshipped in Jerusalem. In other words, we're cut off from God here, so why are you even bothering to engage on this? What's all the point? But Jesus tells her the point. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. In verse 21, he says, Believe me, a time's coming when you'll worship the Father, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, geography will not matter. Verse 23 says, A time's coming when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and truth. It's not about where we worship. 
It's about who we worship and that we worship him from the heart. She says in verse 25 now, you can really see the light. I know that the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he'll explain all this to me. She's starting to think salvation time. She's starting to think a promised one is coming. And then Jesus gives that striking response, I am he. The Messiah has come. The Christ is here. The one deserving of all worship and honor and praise is here. I know your sin, Jesus says, but I have come for your salvation. He offers a hope. I know you, but I have come to save you. Jesus knows our sin. There is nothing hidden from him, but yet he came because of that sin. He came for our salvation. We all struggle with sin. It's a reality for everyone. It just looks different for each of us. The danger is that we cover over it or we ignore it or we conceal it or we forget about it or we dismiss it. We keep it behind closed doors rather than acknowledging it. But Jesus knows it. He knows our hearts and he looks straight into that heart. He knows exactly what's there. But he says, I know that sin, but I came to save you from that sin. In the same way, in some way, the Samaritan woman is right because she, she felt separated from God because they're saying, we need to go into Jerusalem to worship, but here we are in Samaria. But God, and, and in some way, she's right because sin does that. It separates us from God. But Jesus is trying to take down those barriers and saying, I am the Messiah. I am going to bridge that gap. It is my death on the cross which is going to offer life, hope, and forgiveness. To each of us, Jesus says, I am the one true saviour, the deliverer, the Christ. No one comes to the Father but through me. But if you do come to me, if you believe and drink of my living water, then forgiveness and eternal life is yours. Isn't that amazing? He knows our sin. He knows it absolutely. But that's the reason he wants to engage. Because when we come to him, forgiveness and eternal life is ours. He knows our sin, but he came for our salvation. What sin do you need to hand over to him? What sin might you be trying to hide from him? What water have you been drinking from which you know Jesus wants you to turn away from? That's doing nothing but just create a deeper and deeper thirst. How might you need to experience again and again the salvation of Jesus Christ? The salvation that we have only through him by turning to him and believing that Jesus is Lord. Remember John chapter 7. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, whoever believes in me. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus just wants us to turn to him and believe and accept his forgiveness and acknowledge that he is exactly who he said he is. He is Lord. Now, what happens next is really interesting. See, in verse 27, Jesus' disciples then return. And they're surprised to see Jesus um, interacting with a Samaritan woman for all the reasons that we've talked about. 
And at that point, the Samaritan woman leaves her jar of water behind and heads back to the town. I think that's interesting in itself because the jar was the whole reason she came to that mountain. She's just forgotten about all that now and she's heading back to the town. And she shares with others in the town about what Jesus. In verse 28, 28, she says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And we're told that they came out of the town to meet Jesus. Now, if you jump to verses 39 to 41, this story continues. It says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. He dwelt with them. And because of his words, many more became believers. There's nothing more to say? No. <laughs> it's interesting to see how the way this whole story turns around. Okay? This woman has gone from being an outcast amongst the outcast, and now she's being the tool by which other people are hearing and experiencing the gospel. And there are few things more powerful than the testimony of the work of Jesus Christ in our life. We know that, don't we? We heard it tonight. There are few things more powerful and there's nothing anyone can take away from you than the testimony of what Jesus has done in your life and the testimony of what Jesus has done in my life. We can easily feel trapped by feeling we've got nothing to offer back to God. We can easily feel like when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus, we've just got nothing to say. But genuine and authentic words about what Jesus has done for us The Holy Spirit can use that for amazing things. This woman has gone from being an outcast to becoming the means by which God's salvation was reaching the rest of her community. That is the transformational power of the gospel. That is what it means to be changed by Jesus, that he comes in, he knows your sin, he offers forgiveness and life, and not only that does he change us from the inside, he then sends us out so that the salvation we know in him can then be experienced and touched on the hearts of those around us. So how might God be wanting to use you? How might God be wanting to take your testimony of Jesus and work in your life into your communities? Because God's salvation was never intended to stop with us. It was always intended to be a gift that we receive, but which then overflows into the lives of those around us. Sometimes sharing with other people is as simple as saying, come and meet Jesus. He knows everything I've ever done. He came to offer us life and salvation. He is the Messiah and he wants to engage with you too. The gospel isn't complicated. The work of what he's done in our life is fact. And it's a powerful tool that God can use for amazing things. Remember, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. No one is beyond his loving arms because everyone's soul has an equal thirst for him. The same Jesus knows the full extent of our sin, but yet he came as the salvation for that sin. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for that sin. He stood, as Beck talked about, he stood in our place and took the punishment that we deserve so that we could have life. And it's that life that everyone's soul craves. 
whether they acknowledge it or not. You know, for those who might be unsure about whether they have received that gift of salvation, for those who might be unsure of where they stand before Jesus, please know with 100% certainty that he is standing at the well wanting to engage. He wants to get your attention. He knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you like you wouldn't believe. And he wants to engage. Please don't leave here tonight without being willing to engage with him in return. And accept the salvation that he offers simply by, as Jesus said, believing in me. That's it. He just wants faith. He just wants a life that's submitted before him as Lord and God. And for those who have experienced this forgiveness, who do know the reality of Jesus in their life, then, then Jesus just says, go. Take your testimony. Go out into others, into your communities, and share with them what he has done. Our prayer is that God will bring the reality of our own sin and his salvation afresh to us so that we then are reminded of what Jesus has done we ask him to turn us away from whatever other cups we might be drinking from and we just go and we tell people about the truth and the power of Jesus Christ that he is all that they need. Now tonight we're going to do something a little bit different as a reminder of this. We've been talking a lot about water. So the musos are going to come up and they're going to play um, our last song for us. And the cup, there's a cup that's going to go around. They're just the communion cups, but tonight they just have some water in them. And if you've been thinking tonight or been challenged about what drink or what cup you might be drinking from, what things might be in your life which Jesus might be asking you to turn away from, or perhaps you've just been challenged to um, turn back to Jesus and just look to him as being the nourishment for our souls above all other things, then I'd encourage you to take one of the cups that comes around tonight. And just drink it in your own time as the music's playing and just say a prayer to Jesus. I'm not going to tell you what needs to be in that prayer. I just encourage you to be part of it and just submit before him as a reminder that he is the water that we need. He is the living water. He is the one our soul thirsts and desires for. And may we as a church just remain wholly focused on him.